Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Today we'll be continuing our quick hit series and discussing burns, which always come up on our in-service examination. And we'd like to thank Allergan for their support of this podcast. So our first topic will be acid burns. And one of the most common burns that we read about are hydrofluoric burns. And this behaves as a strong acid at higher concentrations. And this can cause liquefactive necrosis and pain out of proportion to exam. And this is due to a combination of fluoride ions to calcium ions, and this causes hyperkalemia. Alkali application is not recommended as this can cause an exothermic burn. The treatment is just surface irrigation with copious amounts of water at low pressure, followed by topical calcium gluconate, which bind the fluoride ions before they penetrate into the soft tissues. Phosphorus burns are extremely volatile and found in fireworks and fertilizer. And the treatment includes immediate debridement of visible debris, copious irrigation, moist gauze dressings, and cardiac monitoring. And phenol burns are treated with polyethylene glycol. So overall, for acidic burns, you should not neutralize them. And basically, the treatment is irrigation and debridement. Great. Thanks, Hannah. Next, we'll talk a little bit about electrical burns and frostbite. So electrical burns are high energy burns, and these are typically treated with fasciotomies and release of Guillain's canal as risk of compartment syndrome is high. So nearly every question I see on the in-service about electrical burns includes a fasciotomy. Severity of injury is proportional to the cross-sectional area of tissue able to carry current. So most severe injuries are seen in the smallest areas, for example, the wrist and the ankle. Next, we'll talk about frostbite. This occurs by formation of ice crystals in the intracellular and extracellular spaces. Extracellular crystals form, and this causes an increase in osmotic pressure. So water will leave the cells and intracellular dehydration and eventual cell death occurs. Vascular endothelial damage also occurs secondarily due to intravascular thrombosis. So the inciting factor for frostbite is extracellular crystal formation. Treatment for this is rapid rewarming in water at a temperature of 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius, and do not use radiant heat. So if radiant heat is a part of the answer, do not pick that answer. Followed by consideration of intra-arterial thrombolytic therapy after angiography. This can significantly decrease the rate of amputation if administered within 24 hours of onset of frostbite. Additionally, you can treat with NSAIDs for antiprostaglandin activity, and this will inhibit thromboxane and decreases secondary tissue damage. And finally, a technetium 99 triple phase scan can accurately estimate the level of amputation. This is not therapeutic and is done within the first few days of injury. Hannah, do you want to talk to us a little bit about burn physiology? Yes. So for burn physiology, you'll see several hemodynamic changes after a burn due to hypovolemia. And these include decreased cardiac output, decreased peripheral blood flow, decreased urine output, increased systemic vascular resistance, and burns can impair both humoral and cellular immunity by depressing the levels of circulating immunoglobulins and upregulating integrins and cytokines, TNF-alpha, IL-1, and IL-8. 
you'll see decreased B lymphocytes, NK cells, or natural killer cells, T helper cells, and increased number of T suppressor lymphocytes. I hope everyone got that. So next is the rule of nines, and this always comes up to some extent. Uh, but just to remember that the head and neck uh, compose 9% of the total body surface area, the anterior torso is 18%, the posterior torso is 18%, each upper extremity is 9%, and each lower extremity is 18%, and the perineum is 1%. And this is slightly different for kids due to a larger head. So the criteria for transfer to a burn center are partial thickness burns over 10% of the total body surface area, burns that involve sensitive areas, which are the hands, feet, genitalia, and joints, third-degree burns, electrical or chemical burns, inhalation, injury, and all pediatric patients. The next important topic is fluid resuscitation. So it's important to know the Parkland formula, and this is four times the total body surface area of the burn times the weight of the patient in kilograms. This equals the amount of fluid that should be given within the first 24 hours, and half of this fluid should be given in the first eight hours and the rest over the next 16 hours. And this formula is used for second and third degree burns that encompass more than 20% of the total body surface area. And you resuscitate using lactated ringer. Insufficient resuscitation is associated with hemodynamic collapse and end organ damage due to the insensible losses that occur with burns. However, over-resuscitation can lead to infections, acute respiratory infections, and abdominal compartment syndrome. The best measure to guide appropriate fluid management is the urine output. And just remember, the appropriate urine output is 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour in children or 30 to 50 milliliters per hour in adults. Rachel, you want to go over some of the topical medications? All right. So we'll move on to topical medications. The first one is silver nitrate. This has poor tissue penetration and is used in toxic epidermal necrolysis. The complication associated with this is hyponatremia. So frequently asked hyponatremia. So uh, silvadine or silver sulfadiazine, this also has a limited capacity to penetrate a wound bed. It, it penetrates the surface epithelium only and can cause reversible neutropenia. So silvadine and neutropenia. And the last is mafenide acetate. This effectively penetrates burn eschar as well as cartilage. It decreases the risk of superative chondritis. So you can use this on the ear. It's frequently asked for burns of the ear and is associated with metabolic acidosis. So silver nitrate, hyponatremia, silver sulfadiazine, reversible neutropenia, and mafenide acetate or sulfamylon metabolic acidosis. Airway management is also really important in burns. You want to look for signs of lung injury, singed eyebrows, charred face, difficulty breathing. Diagnosis is made with fiber optic bronchoscopy. Inhalation injuries carry the risk for carbon monoxide poisoning, and these patients should be intubated with 100% oxy oxygen delivery. And remember, this leads to dissociation of the carbon monoxide molecule from hemoglobin. Carbon monoxide poisoning can falsely show normal appearing oxygen saturation. And finally, for the management of airway burns or OR fires, if there is a concern for an airway injury like smoke and burning odor, you are to immediately remove the endotracheal tube and pour saline in the airway, followed by reestablishing ventilation. So I know that was on our test in, within the last couple of years. Nutrition is important for burn management and enteral feeding is the preferred modality of access. Poor intestinal perfusion is a risk and thus gastric feeding should be reduced to trophic feeds. Threatened intestinal perfusion signs include firm abdominal distension, 
gastric output greater than 200 milliliters a day and hypotension requiring vasopressor support. And to calculate the amount of nutritional uh, needs your patient has, there is the Carreri formula, which we were tested on with, and it's a little bit hard to remember. So I'll try to say this slowly and repeat it, but it is 25 kcals per kg per day plus 40 kcals times the amount of total surface body burn per day. So it's 25 times your weight in kilogram plus 40 times your total body surface area of your burn. And that is your kcals per day. Initial operative treatment of a burn includes excisions and escherotomies and excision for suspected infection in critically ill patients will include excision down to fascia to decrease your insensible losses. Hannah, do you want to talk to us a little bit about burn reconstruction? Yes. So one of the mainstays of burn reconstruction is split thickness skin grafts. And it's important to know that you can use negative pressure wound therapy for graft dressings, and this is associated with improved survival of the graft. We often use Integra, which is a bilaminar skin substitute composed of an outer silicone layer and a biologic scaffold. And this can be applied to the burn and then removed after 21 days, which time a split thickness skin graft is performed. CEA or cultured epidermal autographs are an option to resurface large wounds in massively burned patients who have limited donor sites for skin grafts. And this works by engineering a small skin biopsy and expanding the keratinocytes by 10,000 fold. This laxodermal layer is fragile and is relatively expensive. In terms of post-operative splinting, the goal is to splint the patient in a physiologic position. So the neck should be in slight extension, the shoulders fully abducted at 90 degrees, the elbow should be fully extended at 180 degrees, the wrist should be in neutral or slightly extended position, and the hands in an intrinsic plus position. So just a few specifics for pediatric burns. Instead of using lactate ringers, which we said you should use for adults, in children you should use lactate ringers with 5% dextrose added. Often you can use oxandrolone administration in pediatric patients with greater than 30% of the total body surface area burned to improve the patient's height, bone mineral content, cardiac uh, output, and muscle strength. If there is suspected child abuse, which you can tell from the pattern of the burn, if there's a linear line to the burn, or if it looks like the child has been dipped in boiling liquid, if there's significant burns to the hands and feet, these are all indications for transfer to a burn center. In terms of scar treatment, the mainstay is pressure garment therapy, and this works by exerting pressure perpendicular and parallel to the surface of the scar, and this works opposite of the contracture. The mechanism is inhibition of the transformation of fibroblasts to myofibroblasts, and this can improve the strength of the scar and leads to smaller, more densely packed collagen. Rachel, do you want to finish up with scar contractures? So we have a little bit more to go, scar contractures, complications, and then our miscellaneous category. For scar contractures, severe burn contractures should indicate perforator-based local flaps if available or free tissue transfer, particularly when no local options or extensive burns preclude Z-plasties or local tissue transfer. A Z-plasty is commonly used to lengthen a contracted scar. It breaks the straight line and shifts the soft contour, so it's great for neck contractures. And other options for scar contractures include tissue expansion and skin grafting. 
For burn ectropion, you should use full thickness skin grafting and ectropion release. And then finally, neck contracture release is the most commonly performed release of scar contractures in general. Complications of burns, there are a few that are frequently tested. The first one is electrical burns and circumferential burns, and these carry the risk for compartment syndrome. So compartment syndrome can lead to Volkman's ischemic contracture of the upper extremity or just ischemic contractures if left untreated. And remember, the deep compartments undergo fibrosis first, which include the FDP, FPL, and pronator quadratus. When you think about the signs of compartment syndrome, you want to think about the five Ps, pain, pallor, paresthesia, pulselessness, and paralysis. And treatment for compartment syndrome is fasciotomies. If there is an electrical burn, you want to perform upper extremity fasciotomies, release of the carpal tunnel, release of Guillain's canal, and oftentimes release of pronator quadratus. Compartment syndrome sequelae include rhabdomyolysis and consequential renal and metabolic disorders, including hyperkalemia and hypocalcemia. And these can be treated with insulin and glucose, as well as mannitol. Hypovolemic shock can be seen after tangential excisions of large total body surface area burns. And this is usually evidenced by decreased urine output, tachycardia, and hypotension. And sepsis can also occur in burn patients, and the most common bacteria includes MRSA, Pseudomonas, and Klebsiella. The treatment for this is coverage of the gram-positive and gram-negative organisms with bank and zosin, so prophylactic antifungal treatment is not necessary. And then finally, in our miscellaneous category, TENS or Stevens-Johnson syndrome will present with several days of indolent and nonspecific symptoms, and this is typically after medication administration such as Bactrim, allopurinol, or phenytoin. And this will start as fever, malaise, dysphagia, and progress to hemodynamic collapse, skin exfoliation, and mucosal sloughing. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast of quick hits for in-service review and stay tuned for our next lecture. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.